Hey everyone, I'm Sanhara and welcome to the Black Girl's Guide to Fertility podcast. This show is for all women who are dealing with infertility, but it's specifically dedicated to Black women because we have a problem with opening up when it comes to this issue. And I don't want to leave out the men. You guys are welcome here too. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with producer and media specialist Tanika Gray about her nonprofit, The White Dress Project, and how she's helping women fight fibroids one dress at a time. Fighting Fibroids. So I'm here with my guest today, Tanika. Uh, she works um, in media and news at CNN, um, and she's going to be talking more about fighting fibroids, and uh, we're going to learn more about her journey. Her nonprofit is the White Dress Project, um, and I just love, love, love what she's doing and love her slogan and everything that she came up with. But let's start with fighting fibroids. So Tanika, why don't you tell us more about how you discovered that you had fibroids and how that whole process came about and what you did to try to, um, I guess, heal your body of the fibroids. Yeah. So hi, everybody. I'm really excited to be joining you, Sonhara. I, too, love your platform and what you have done to raise the conversation around infertility, specifically for Black women. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. Um, No problem. As you mentioned, um, this entire uh, starting of my nonprofit, The White Dress Project, really came from my own personal story. So I started to experience symptoms of fibroids probably when I was about 15 years old. Wow. I have always had very, very heavy periods. I have always had a protruding belly. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was like that girl in school that just was skinny. But yeah, so you're so belly. thin. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, slim, but always had a belly. And even my family, you know, when I would eat, my belly would just protrude. Mm. And it was just what I was known for. And I, funny enough, looking back now, I realized how very early on I learned how to dress to camouflage it. Mm. And so I've always kind of been thinking of ways to... Exactly, exactly. Thinking of ways to hide. But I knew very early on, or at least I had the symptoms of fibroids. And my mother had fibroids. And when she started to notice that I was experiencing the same symptoms, she mentioned to me that, you know, fibroids could potentially be a possibility. And I had also known that she had experienced losing a set of twins to fibroids. Mm -hmm. So I was familiar. Okay. But it's interesting now looking back at it, it's interesting how when I had these symptoms, we still were kind of in denial. Like, oh no, you know, not not my daughter. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh no, that's like mommy's thing, not me. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until I kind of just dealt with it and I, it was just, my journey and and my mother was very adamant about teaching me how to be protective, right? So not even let's figure out really what's going on, but almost like this is a woman's journey. 
So here's how you protect yourself. Yeah. So I learned very early on that I wasn't one who was going to be able to wear a tampon. Mm. Um, I always had an extra uh, set of clothes with me wherever I went. I always wore overnight pads, Mm. two pairs of underwear. Like it was just my life. And I just thought, well, I'm a woman. Yeah. This is what becoming a woman is like. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's it. Did your doctor, Um, being that you were 15 when it first happened, that your OBGYN at that point, if you were even going to one, did they recommend you do anything? Um, Or was it just kind of like your mother went through it, so she was advising you on kind of how to handle it? Yeah, I think she was just advising me, my mom, on how to how to deal with it. And it was almost like, you're a woman. It's what happens, like life goes on. Yeah. It was that type of feeling. I don't think I started to see an OBGYN until my 20s. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I was, you know, still yeah. going to a pediatrician. Yeah, or the, exactly. <laughs> right, the family doctor. Yeah you know, at that age. But I do remember distinctly when I was heading to college, it, my, the bleeding and the bloating and the pain started to get really out of control. Mm -hmm. And I had an experience with a male doctor Mm -hmm. who told me that I needed to do a DNC. And can you explain to people exactly what that is for people who don't know? Yeah, so I'm not even sure if I quite know, right? But (laughs) the idea is that they go in and they scrape your uterus. It's Mm -hmm. it's called, um, I I forgot what the the complete uh, name for DMT Mm -hmm. is, but they go in and they basically scrape anything that is on your uterus. And I, I believe they also use it when they suspect that you may have miscarried. Yeah. It's it's a way to clean out your uterus per mm-hmm. se. Mm-hmm. So I had that at like age 20, like this for wow. maybe even a little earlier than that, because I was just about to go to college. So I might've been around 18. So it was like this scraping of my uterus and their, his recommendation at the time was to do this so that the bleeding would decrease because maybe I had had a miscarriage some way. Mm. And it was so off-putting to me because yeah. I remember thinking, like, now my mom's going to think I'm having sex. sex yeah. <laughs> Wasn't even that type of party. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I'm just bleeding. And who knows, like, what's going on? And like I said, even though I had had the family history and reference of fibroids, I don't know. I feel like we just still were in denial. Yeah. Um, so I feel like I didn't get diagnosed with fibroids until probably a couple years after that. So maybe like 20, 21, mm. 22. Okay. And I just went through college dealing with heavy bleeding, knowing how to protect myself, but having many accidents still mm. and dealing with lots of uh, anemia. Mm. And and that was my first time that I started having to get blood transfusions. Wow. And by by the end of college, I probably had had around three wow. because I was just that anemic, that faint, that fatigued. Mm. We can wear white. So one of the things that I really, really loved is that you used 
you know, your experiences and things that you've gone through with fibroids from your teens into adult life. And you use that to help other women who are going through the same thing. So you founded your nonprofit called the White Dress Project. And I love, love, love your slogan, We Can Wear White. So can you tell people more about your nonprofit and what sparked you to start it and how you're helping women? Yeah, I really appreciate that opportunity because, um, you know, I just started this from my heart and Mm -hmm. started it from a place of wanting to have the support that I didn't see, right? Mm -hmm. And I... I, that I wanted for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can even say that, you know, maybe I started this organization selfish, selfishly yeah. because I felt like I wanted that support. I felt like there's no way that the statistics are what they are. Mm-hmm. And there are so many women suffering from fibroids. You know, when you talk about it in your girlfriend group, when you talk about it, you know, if you publicly say it, if you talk about it with your family, it's like, oh, yeah, girl, me, my mom, my aunt, yeah. my cousin. Everyone and knows someone. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows someone. Mm-hmm. It's, it's literally one degree of separation yeah, exactly. in terms of who has fibroids. Even from starting this organization, I've seen, you know, sisters talk about, I have it, but my sister does it, but then my mom did. Yeah, my mom so does it, it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to get back to your question, I really wanted to have a space for women to understand that they did not have to suffer in silence Mm -hmm. and that this was something that we didn't just have to endure and keep it moving with and just keep the motions going while we're keeled over on the bathroom floor in fetal position because we bled for 28 days. You know what I mean? And I felt like there were so many other epidemics and diseases that were having the conversation nationally and internationally, globally, but I felt like fibroids was just as important. And I just didn't understand. I couldn't um, rationalize why we weren't having these conversations on a national level and why the support isn't there. Exactly. And I think it's so powerful, obviously the slogan, we can wear white and that you guys actually gather. I know your events are more geared towards the summer that you guys gather and you wear white. And so I know you mentioned before that people think sometimes you guys are going to a wedding, you're part of something else, but it prompts them to ask you, you know, what is this, what's going on? That's so powerful to see so many women together wearing white. And if you can just touch on that a little bit and talk about those experiences when you guys are gathered together and the type of events that you guys put on. Yeah, because obviously when you have fibroids or when you have symptomatic fibroids, and I I should make this very clear that not all women who have fibroids have symptomatic fibroids. So not every woman is going to resonate with the bleeding and the bloating. Yeah. But a large majority of women who have fibroids do um, suffer with these type of symptoms. So it's a feeling, women just resonate with it because they understand that when they have these symptoms, the white is not even a consideration. Mm-hmm. And so we use it as a symbol of hope. We use it as a symbol of awareness and education. 
that no, I don't feel comfortable doing this, but I'm pushing beyond the boundaries of what I feel to support my sister. Yeah. And even if I can't wear my white today, my sister is wearing her white for me. When women wear white and we come together, we are really showing in solidarity that we support one another. We understand the stories that each of us has and the the similar stories that each of us has. And we're wearing our white for one another. No, we don't feel comfortable doing it, but it's a symbol of hope for us knowing that we will find a cure. There will be more funding and legislation and that together through our collective stories, there will be more conversation about this the experiences that we have due to fibroids. Ups and downs of fertility. So let's jump into the ups and downs of fertility. And I know that fertility and, well, infertility for that matter, is such a personal, personal experience. You know, I've chosen to make mine public. Um, But if you want to share, feel free to share as little as you want to share, as much as you want to share a little bit about your journey, um, having been diagnosed with fibroids and then, you know, getting married and then finding yourself, you know, going through fertility treatments or seeing a fertility doctor and how that plays out for you and how, you know, you're dealing with that aspect of it. Yeah. So before I got married, I, I used to just hear stories of women, you know, you get married and then you have a baby. And I don't know if I was just naive. I guess I was, but I just, I really thought it would be that simple. Same here. I didn't even think about, (laughs) yeah, I, it's, it's so looking back, I was really just like, oh, this is, that's how it goes down. Like Mm -hmm. what possibly could go wrong? Exactly. And when you start to, I think for me, even getting to the point where I had to seek an REI specialist, like, I was just like, why? Yeah. <laughs> like, I just, I just, my first myomectomy potentially could have scarred my uterus. And maybe that's why, you know, things weren't sticking per se. Mm. And so I think getting to the point I'll back up a little bit. There was a an experience I had before my first myomectomy where I went to a doctor, male doctor, and he told me, you know, forget about thinking about children. My uterus was way too compromised. Wow. That was literally six months after I had gotten married. Mm-hmm. And it was devastating, to say the least, to mm-hmm. hear someone with diagnosis. And needless to say, I had my, my first myomectomy six months later. But I I felt like, oh, I'm going to prove that doctor wrong. I met a doctor who was very faith-based and she was very positive and said, you know, we're going to get these fibroids out. You're going to have your baby. And I just thought it was just going to go down that way. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, you're also dealing with the realities of marriage, right? Yeah. And coming into something that two people don't know necessarily what they're doing. Mm -hmm. 
and having to navigate that along with with that stress and with trying to be parents as well. Exactly, exactly. So it was very eye-opening for me. Mm-hmm. And I just, I've never been this girl that is just like, everything's perfect. Yeah. Oh, nothing can go wrong. But for this instance, I felt like, I don't get it. Like, what's yeah. the problem? Exactly. So getting to the point where we had to, to seek fertility specialists was a hard place to get to for me. Okay. But once I started down that process, once again, I went into it very optimistic and I said to myself, oh, okay. So once we start these IVF treatments, like what could go wrong? (laughs) And that's so much, that's so much like my thinking. <laughs> Support IVF um, cycles. And, and now we're at the point where we do have an embryo. Okay. But it is my only embryo. And it becomes very a very difficult situation because you want to make sure that your uterus is in the right prime yeah. place to mm-hmm. receive that embryo. Mm-hmm. So I'm grateful for what we have gotten out of the journey yeah but the anxiety still exists Exists. Mm -hmm. in terms of you know what what the future will hold at the white dress project yesterday we did an ig live with a therapist and we talked about mental health issues coupled with reproductive health issues and she just made such a good point about controlling what we can and letting go of the rest and how important it is to do so. Yeah. But it's just never one of those things that I thought that I would not have control over. Supporting the vision. So supporting the vision, how can people support the White Dress Project and also, what advice do you have for other women, other couples who are dealing with, you know, fibroids and other infertility issues? What advice do you have for them? And again, how can people support the White Dress Project? So the advice that I have for couples and specifically women, whether you're in a relationship or not, who who's dealing with fibroids and reproductive health issues It sounds so simple, but it is so important for us to share our stories. There is so much healing that happens when we share our stories. There is so much removal of this feeling of loneliness and feeling like you are the only person on the planet that is going through this particular scenario. And I think once we hear those stories and once they resonate with us, it allows us to take the shame and the guilt away that we often subscribe to ourselves when we're going through these types of issues. A story doesn't help my situation or sharing my story doesn't alleviate what's happening. But you'd be so surprised that when you release it, when you get it outside of you, when you share it and you get the encouragement from so many women, it's it's so uh, encouraging to yeah. know that that in some type of way soothes you and allows you to feel comforted. And to keep so going, really, keep pushing. 
and to and to keep going and to keep going. When I shared with people that I had 27 fibroids removed, my first myomectomy, wow. when people said, oh, okay, well, girl, you can do it because my first one, I had 44 removed wow. or my first one, I had 50 removed. When you hear those types of things, you're like, well, if she did it, yeah, then exactly. Exactly. Like, I got I this too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You're one of those people for me when I hear, you know, you share your story about, you know, multiple rounds of IVF mm-hmm. and now you have your beautiful daughter. It allows me to feel like, well, Sanara went through it. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it does give you that level of comfort. And obviously everybody's tolerance level is different. Yeah. It's different, right? I'm not saying that you're any less than a person if you can't go through what I go through or vice versa. But it just allows you to know that it can be done. Whatever decision you make and however you choose to do it, it, it allows you to know that you're not alone. And exactly. that, that is so huge when That's you're the trying most important to thing. Because <laughs> yeah. it's so isolating. Exactly. It is very isolating. Um, in terms of how people can, can help and, and get in touch with us, we are a grassroots organization really just trying to support women and let women know that we are here and let women know that they do not have to suffer in silence. Obviously, we're really active on social media. So following us, engaging with us, sharing your story with us is very helpful for us because it allows the walls of silence to be broken, really. Like once people start sharing, then once again, you're in that space where you're like, well, she did it, so I could do it. Exactly. And so that is one of our biggest ways that you can support is by helping us on social media. How can they find you on social media, be it Instagram or Facebook? Oh, yes. Yes, so we're on Facebook at the white dress project and we are on instagram at we can wear white and we are on twitter at we can underscore wear white and earlier you mentioned you know uh the name sometimes people think it's synonymous with fashion (laughs) and it's it's so good that people think that sometimes because it opens the conversation yeah. up to getting people to think about what this conversation is really about. So exactly. once I'm like, no, this is not about wedding dresses, <laughs> then people, <laughs> you know, then you can open the conversation to different things, obviously, and then they become very interested in what we have to say. Exactly, because it's all part of being part of the bigger conversation. And that's something I always push. I'm Sanhara Eastman, and thank you for listening to the Black Girl's Guide to Fertility podcast. You can stay connected with this movement on my website, on Facebook, and on Instagram. And if you haven't already, please join my mailing list at blackgirlsguidetofertility.com and sanharaeastman.com. And if you haven't, please check out the first two episodes of my web series that's currently available on YouTube. And if you would like to donate, please go to my website, blackgirlsguidetofertility.com and click on the PayPal tab.
Thank you.